As a quick reminder, we are in the midst of the season of Lent, this particular time of the year where we focus on and remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and what that means for us, not only in how we live, but our hopes for the future. This year, to help us do that, we are working through the book of Leviticus, or the chapter, Leviticus 23. It's a chapter of the Bible that outlines all of the Old Testament feasts and festivals that the Jewish community were called to participate in and practice to help them remember who they were, what God had done for them, and who they were being called to be. We're doing that not just to remember the old times, but most importantly, we're doing this with a lighter view to the sense that as Paul talks about it in Colossians, that all of those feasts and festivals were meant to fundamentally point to who Christ would be and how Christ fulfills those Old Testament feasts and festivals. So, for example, first we looked at the Feast of Passover, where the blood of the Lamb was used to spare the Israelites during the time of the Exodus, pointing to the fulfillment of Christ's blood and how it spares us from the fate of death and hell that we should have earned because of our sin. Last week we looked at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's that festival that reminded them that having been saved, they were called to be a new people, to clean out the leaven and the sin in their lives. Reminding us that as forgiven sinners in Christ, we too are called to live in light of his grace and according to his standard of holiness. Well, we've made it to the third feast tonight, uh, this morning. It is morning, I promise you, we know that. It is Leviticus uh, 23, where I'll be reading verses 9 through 14. The words will be on the screen. I think they're in the back of your orders of service, or they can be looked up in your pew Bibles. From Leviticus 23 again, verses 9 through 14. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, And reap its harvest. You shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering... With it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hin. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain parched, of fresh, parched or fresh until the same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a, sta- is a statute forever, throughout your generations, in all your dwellings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For the technology team, I apologize. I will have slides. I'll control them from up here again, but uh, hopefully it won't be a big deal. I forgot to mention that beforehand. Thanks for your work. If you want to do anything important in life, it necessarily requires that you give of yourself to that event or to that activity. 
I don't know how long it's been the standard practice, but I do know from experience for the last several years, especially when my daughters start a new activity or engage in a new endeavor, oftentimes they will be asked to sign letters of commitment. These letters explain that the student understands that by joining this activity, they are committing to purchase certain things that are necessary to that activity, that they understand the the practices that they will be required to attend and what happens if they don't attend those practices. They know when the activity takes place and they are committing themselves in advance from the very get-go that they will be there, that they're going to give themselves to that activity. I know sports require this, clubs require this. Oftentimes, from the start, the leader of these groups wants to know and ensure that they know exactly what they're signing up for and that they are willing to give of themselves whatever is required in order to properly participate. Something similar happens in academics. In almost every field, when you get a major in college, they often start with some of the hardest of classes typically referred to weed-out classes, meaning that in taking these classes, you understand the level and the depth of commitment it's going to take to pursue that major or that career. And oftentimes, again, through experience or through observation and stories I've heard from others, you do see that people that aren't able to make those first weed-out classes quickly drop out or change their plans and their future knowing that because they weren't able to make those first few classes, they're not sure that they've got what it takes to continue in this. But having made it through those classes, they're encouraged. They know that they have what it takes looking ahead. If we want it, If it's important to us, no matter how hard it is or how much time it takes, we're willing to sign those papers of commitment. We're willing to endure the hardships. We're willing to give of ourselves because we think it's worth it. Well, as I said, this morning we are looking at our third of the feasts mentioned in Leviticus 23. The Feast of First Fruits. Our introduction to the feast starts in verse 10 of what we just read when it says, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest. And I just wanted to highlight again those phrases in the, or that opening phrase, when you come into the land. We remember that Leviticus was a book that was written during the time when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness Meaning that this is the third feast in a row that we are looking at that was implemented and instituted before the events that it would celebrate actually took place. In fact, it wasn't for at least a whole other generation of Israelites that they were going to even be able to celebrate this event because they weren't there yet. This was a feast established on a promise. And the promise was not just based on the fact that God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. That he had prevented them any longer from being under the rule and the reign and the authority of the Egyptians. But he had pulled them out in order to go to a new place. 
to establish them as a new people, to give them a new identity and a new land in which they could live out that identity, identified as the promised land, the land of Canaan. This is the land that their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had explored and and settled in and had been blessed and called to. This was a land that was often described as flowing with milk and honey. It was a land that they would live in, in cities that they did not build, drink from cisterns and wells that they did not dig, and eat from vineyards and, and fields that they did not plant. It was a wonderful land that God was giving to them. A land where they could live out their free lives. Where they could worship God properly. And where they could be a light to the nations around them. And before they even got there, God was instructing them on how to live when they did get there. Including the celebration of these feasts. And some of that meaning of what this feast was all about is seen at when this feast was celebrated. I will confess that initially when I just started reading through this text, my assumption was that this feast, unlike the other ones we were looking at, wasn't as set in the calendar. It made sense to me that when it says in verse 11 that on the day after the Sabbath, Well, that would mean that whenever your harvest started, because your harvest might start different day than when my started, that on the day after the Sabbath, after you started your harvest, you were to participate in this. However, as I began researching this feast, I learned that the Feast of First Fruits was also celebrated during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, that all of these things were going together. Again, as we identified with Passover, God had identified this as the first month of the Israelite calendar. He was doing something new with them in the Exodus, and so their year was going to start at this time. It became identified as the the month of Nisan. And on the 10th day of the month, that was when they were to choose the lamb for the Passover sacrifice letting it be with them for four days. On the 14th day would be the the celebration of Passover. They would kill the lamb. They would sprinkle its blood on the doorpost, and they would eat the Passover meal. Well, this then would immediately kick off the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that entire week-long feast where they were not to eat any leaven in their house or have it in their house, and it would be the week that they celebrated that festival. And so again, we are in the midst of this time and and season of feasts where they are reminding the Israelites about who they once were as slaves in Egypt and who God had called them to be as his people. And in the midst of that, when it says on the Sabbath after, or, or, or on the day after the Sabbath, It actually was the day after the Sabbath that was after Passover. And so the first fruits feast was celebrated on the 16th day of Nisan. Again, a whole time reminding them not just who they weren't any longer as slaves, but in this midst of this feast reminding of who they were called to be 
and what God had given to them to allow them to be those people. So that's when the feast took place. Let's look at what the feast involved. Uh, This was another feast that would take some time of preparation. So once the people were established in the land and were growing crops on their own land, near this time of the year when this spring barley harvest was about to be gathered in, they would start by going into their field and, and marking off a certain area that was going to be designated as their first fruits harvest. And when the time came, they would start harvesting by collecting the grain from that part of the fields first. Then, as the text lays out, they would bring the first sheaf of the harvest to the temple. And the ceremony involved two parts. The the priest would take that first sheaf and he would wave it before God as an offering. And then they would participate in other offerings. There would be the traditional burnt offering of a lamb. There would be the grain offering, so they would take the sheaf and mix it with olive oil and give that to God. And then they would also offer up a drink offering, an offering of wine. And as an offering of first fruits, as the first thing that they had harvested, I think we can recognize the symbolism behind this feast. First and foremost, it was an offering of gratitude. Every time they started their annual harvest and they began to collect what would provide for them food for the coming months, they would start by remembering where that food came from, where the land that they grew it on had come from, and that God was the one who had freed them and who had given them this land and this life. And as a reminder of that, as a way of being grateful and actively acknowledging the fact that everything that they had and enjoyed in life was a gift from God's hand, they would offer the very first of what they harvested to God out of gratitude. So, last week, Pastor Patrick gave an illustration where he imagined going into the harvesting business, and in order to do that, he rescued a sweeper from the junkyard and started to try to start this business. And the point of that illustration was to suggest that just because he had something that looked like a sweeper, it wasn't ready to do the work. It had to have a lot of work of restoration and, and rebuilding in order for it to be and, and function exactly as it was meant to be a proper sweeper. Well, as long as we're making up scenarios, I thought I could build on that illustration a little bit this morning. And, and so imagine now that I hear that Pastor Patrick wants to get into the harvesting business. But he can't because all he can afford is a junker from the scrap heap. And so I decide out of the goodness of my heart that in order to help him, I'm going to purchase for him a state-of-the-art, top-of-the-line sweeper with all the latest bells and whistles. And then I give that sweeper to Pastor Patrick as a gift. How would you imagine he would respond to that gift? I would imagine that he would be deeply appreciative of that gift. And that every time he started a new season where he was using it, he would remember where that gift came from. Why and how he was able to do the work that he was doing. 
And he would probably do what he could to show his appreciation to the giver of that gift in some token way. So, some of this feast was about gratitude to God in that very same way. It was a reminder that when they got into the land, that everything they had was a gift from God. They were to recognize that it was all from him, and the only appropriate response was to give back to God in some small way to show their deep appreciation for the incredible gifts that God had given to them. However, that wasn't the end of the meaning of this. Not only was this an offering of gratitude, but it was also an act of faith. This is where we have to, again, remember a little bit of the historical setting that we are in. You see, for them, it was not as though they were looking at their field and they decided, you know what, today's the day. The crop is ready. Let's fire up the machines. Let's get everything out there, and it's time to harvest. And within a couple hours worth of work, everything was already harvested, cleaned up, and ready to go. Kind of like it is today. I make it that easy, right? That's how it is. While it certainly isn't that easy, the reality is back then they did everything by hand. And therefore, the harvest was never measured in hours worth of work. It was measured in days or weeks worth of work. It took a lot of hand, individual effort to to cut the hay, to reap the hay, to separate it from the chaff and to, to store it in a proper way. It took an awful lot of effort. And so when you give away the very first of that harvest, that first step toward refilling your depleted supply of grain, again, it needed to feed your family and your animals and your livelihood, that takes a great deal of faith. It was an act that said they trusted that the same God that had given them this land, who had provided them with this crop, who had started the harvest, could be trusted to provide the rest of the harvest. And when the first of what was grown was given to him, they were trusting that the rest of the harvest would be provided from his hand as well. This point is drawn out and highlighted in the command of verse 14, that they were not to eat from the harvest until they had first given the feast offering to God. Now, I I wanted to find an answer to the question, well, when does that, that prohibition of eating start? Was it from the beginning of the year, those first 16 days of the year before they could eat bread? Or, or was it from the start of the harvest before they were allowed to eat? And unfortunately, I wasn't able to find an answer to that question. But nonetheless, there was a period of time where before they touched anything of what they reaped, It was first and foremost had to be offered to God. Again, not only as a way to say thank you, but it was a way to show that they were trusting in him to provide for the rest. Now, that's all interesting to learn about. Some interesting facts about what this feast and festival was all about and when it was celebrated and the symbolism that lay behind it. But that's not what we're trying to do here today. Our fundamental point is to say, in all of that, how does that point to Christ? 
And how indeed does Jesus fulfill what that festival, that feast, was all about? Where do we see Christ in the feast of the first fruits? Well, as the original feast was a celebration of what God had given to the people in order to allow them to live the kind of life that God was calling them to live. Well, when we ask the question, what has God given to us in order to be a new people? A people not only called from a life of sin, but equipped and challenged with a new identity and sent on a new mission. The greatest recognition of what, what has been given to us, the answer is, is Jesus. Jesus, the one who is described as the only begotten Son of God. Jesus, who is God himself. In order to save us, and we think about the incredible gifts given to us to God, the only and greatest answer is that God gave himself in order for us to be the people he's called us to be. Which is the greatest possible gift. And what do I mean when I say he gave himself well as we talked about with the passover in order to save and rescue us jesus went to the cross where he offered himself as our sacrifice where his blood was shed his body given and his life offered when he was sacrificed for us on the cross he gave us everything when he went all the way to death paying for us the penalty our sins had earned for ourselves. But death was not where the victory was found. In fact, it was on the third day after his death that he rose again, proving his power over death and calling us to a whole new life. And if you look back at that calendar that I had up here, and, and you think about the timing of things, we recognize that Jesus died on Passover, on Friday. And then we would recognize that the day after the Sabbath, which for the Israelite community was Saturday, it means that Jesus was risen on the Feast of the First Fruits. That he came back to life on that third day, which was on the day of the Feast of First Fruits, which becomes significant to think about when we think about how Paul talks about his resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. In that chapter, Paul is arguing against people who, who didn't believe that there was such a thing as resurrection for anybody at all, that there was no life after death. And so Paul says, well, if that's true, if there is no life after death, if there is no resurrection, that would mean that Jesus was never raised from the dead. And logically then, if he was never raised from the dead, then there's no point in our religious practices. We're to be pitied among people that we're wasting our time in worshiping Jesus. But then he says that Jesus did rise from the dead. And not only do we now have hope in, in pursuing a relationship with him in this life, but we also have a guarantee for the life to come. He makes this explicit in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, when he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
And the whole point of that is to suggest that the resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee. It is the trusted promise of our own resurrection from the dead. That since Jesus rose from the grave, we know that we will be part of the rest of that harvest. And we can trust that just as he was raised from the dead, we too that put our faith in him will also be raised from the dead. Him being the first fruits of that harvest. And so, not only was Jesus the greatest gift, but he is the guarantee of what is to come, the future harvest of the saints to glory. And that all leads to us asking the question, if God gave us himself the greatest possible gift, and if through his resurrection we are guaranteed the resurrection of our bodies to life eternal with him, how do we respond to such a great gift? And there's only one possible answer to that, and that it is, it is more than appropriate, it is necessary that we give ourselves back to God. That we recognize everything that we have, everything that we are, every joy and purpose in our lives is only there because of his incredible grace and gifts to us. If a sports team, if a social club, if an activity is important enough for us to commit to giving ourselves our time, our efforts, our energy, our money, how much more should we be willing to give of ourselves in response to the great gift that God has given to us? So what do we do? Well, when we ask that question, I think oftentimes we think first and foremost of responding by giving financially. When we receive our paychecks, when the harvest comes in, when the financial reward for our works received, it is more than appropriate that we pause and we remember where all of that comes from. That God is the one who deserves credit for giving us the gifts and the talents that we have that allow us to be employed. That God had put us in the right place in the right time and to receive the jobs that we have and that we ought to recognize that by giving back to him a portion of what we've received financially. Whether offering to charities or to the church or directly to the poor and needy, we say, God, this is from you and I want to give part of it back. And to be clear, that's not to buy God off or to, to pay him an amount in order that he now owes us and is going to pay us back in return. It is a gift given in gratitude for what God has done for us. But of course, while our minds often think about money in relationship to offerings and, and giving things back, it's more than that. It's also our time. It's our efforts. It's our talents. It is ourselves. In, in, in the children's worship, Pastor Patrick made reference to Romans 12.1, a, a text I want to pick up on where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
There's a lot that could be said about that text, but fundamentally what Paul is saying is in response to everything God has given to us, we need to offer ourselves and all that we are, not just our money, but our efforts, our skills, our time to God in response. But then we have to ask, we can hear that, but how much does God really get from us? Does he get the first fruits of our blessings? Or does he get what's left over? Do we pray, do devotions and Bible study when we have time? Or do we not do those things because we just don't have the time? We're too committed to other things. Is our giving to the church and to other organizations done after we have enough left over that we can throw a little bit in the box and whatever's left, that's what God gets? Or do we start in trust that the rest will come in making sure that he receives what we get first? Because if we wait to give God our leftovers, we all know oftentimes there's nothing left to give. The Feast of First Fruits was a reminder to the Israelites to recognize where everything they had came from and to give God the first of what they had received from his hand each year. And in seeing what Christ gave us and the promises that he has in the resurrection, shouldn't we also be reminded before each meal, at the start of every day, after every paycheck, to respond to God in gratitude and trust. But while that is important, I don't want to end the sermon there. Because fundamentally, I believe that the first fruits, the, the festival of first fruits was not about what the people owed to God. But fundamentally, it was more importantly about celebrating what God had done for them first. It was an acknowledgement that God had blessed them beyond what they were due. That God had given to them far more than what they deserved. That they had been slaves in Egypt, but now they were people growing their own food for their own benefit and for their own use. And in the very same way, in this season of Lent, it is a reminder to us, not what we owe to God, but what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. To celebrate that in every possible way, the most incredible gift and the great promise that's accompanied with it, that as Jesus was raised from the dead, we too know that we will be raised with him to glory someday because he is the first fruits of the harvest that is to come. That is what we celebrate and that is what motivates us to respond in faith. Let's turn to God in a word of prayer. Oh Lord God and Heavenly Father, we sit before you to remember who we once were. Those that rebelled against you, those who rejected you and were enslaved to sin with no hope. But you, being slow to mercy... Bountiful, bountiful in love and gracious in your abundant provision for us has given us far more than what we deserve. Thank you for the gift 
of Jesus Christ and every gift that you have given to us. Thank you for the assurance that he is, that as he rose from the dead, we too can look forward to a life after this life in glory with you. And may we not only look forward to that in the life to come, but may everything that we do in this life be done in response, in appreciation for your work on our behalf. You are a good, good Father. Thank you for every good and perfect gift that comes from your hand. May our response be nothing short of offering back to you everything that we have and are. A hallelujah of praise to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.